Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you're enjoying this show where we connect college and university students with AEI scholars, and we end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in school. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Daniel Cox and Executive Council student Lily Miller on the Survey Center on American Life's work exploring trends in religion, dating, and other markers of civic health. But before I turn it over to Lily, I want to remind you that if you do enjoy listening to this show, be sure to hit subscribe on your podcast player and uh, give us a five-star rating and and a kind review as that really will help others find this show. And if you are in college right now, I want to remind you that to stay most up to date with all of our work here at AEI, consider joining our year-round executive council program. This is how students like Lily got to know us and stayed in touch with our work, attending summits, doing this podcast, and participating in other programming with our think tank. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Lily Miller, and I'm a senior at the University of Notre Dame studying in the program of liberal studies. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Daniel Cox, who is the director of the Survey Center on American Life and a senior fellow at AEI. Under his leadership, the center is focused on public opinion and survey research on topics such as religious change and measurement, social capital, and youth politics. Before joining AEI, he was the research director at the Public Religion Research Institute, which he co-founded. Dr. Cox holds a PhD and an MA in American government from Georgetown University, where he focused on public opinion, political behavior, and religion and politics. Dr. Cox, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Um, So my first question has to do with your research topics. Um, So you focus a lot on social and dating life, which is definitely a relevant topic for um, college students like my peers and I who are about to enter the post-grad, post-pandemic dating scene. What makes you interested in these specific topics? Yeah, so I have to talk a little bit about grad school here, which is going to be a little bit boring, but I I think I'll I'll get to some place that your listeners will uh, be able to appreciate. So one of the, the things that really distinguishes the work that we do and the work that I've done for my career from stuff that other people do is it's it's more like being a generalist than uh, someone who focuses on a, a particular idea or topic for their entire career, which is what a lot of the academy produces. In, in graduate school, I think there's this emphasis on finding the topic or the idea that you're interested in, the question you want to devote your life or career to addressing, presumably because it's important and it matters. Um, but I think in some instances, it's maybe something that you just have some intrinsic interest in. And I think if you're studying public opinion, this is an entirely wrong-headed approach. Like the work that I want to do, I, I want to focus on topics that matter to other people and not just in, that are in, in, intrinsically interesting to me and that other people are, care about and are invested in finding answers to. So they tend to be bigger questions, broader questions that are interested to a, a wider swath of people. And when it comes to the, the dating and friendship stuff, one of the, the things that has been abundantly clear to me looking at this stuff is there just hasn't been a ton of research on these topics. It's such a fundamental part of human existence in our society, right? Creating friendships 
and you know dating, developing um, romantic attractions and feelings, and um, you know getting married, all, all that stuff, right? Like there's these these kind of human experiences that I think are very very relatable from a very early age. I have a uh, a four year old and a six year old. And they're already creating, you know, friendships and building these bonds and, and developing social ties and learning about how, how all this works. But so much of the social science work, at least the stuff, particularly stuff in the public domain, when we talk about polls and how that's informing debates around issues and, and identifying the prob- societal problems that we have and, and how can we readily address them. We, we don't have a clear understanding about it, even how all this is working and for whom. Uh, and I think that was with, that was certainly true with the friendship stuff. That the experiences of men and women are, are very very different. The people of people with people with the experiences of people with a, a college degree are very different than those who who never went to college. And when it comes to dating, we saw similarly this really important gender divide in how young women versus young men were, were thinking about their dating options and their priorities. And and we conducted uh, a lot of qualitative interviews among young people. And we heard really different things from the men and the women. And so I think like part of my job as a researcher is to kind of put everything on the table and sort of say, okay, you know, this is kind of the state of our knowledge right now. This is kind of what we know. It's built on the work that other people do. I'm not the only one doing this, but we need a lot more people at the table contributing so we can figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah. Great. So related to that and kind of the what you said about you're doing work that's interesting to other people. Um, I found just, you know, talking about some of your op-eds with my friends that um, a lot of what the Survey Center reports on are really relevant issues, especially to young Americans um, with these topics of dating and friendship, but as well as with the pandemic and abortion and religion. So as the director of the center, what do you envision for the center and its contribution to public discourse, but also what would you say is kind of your target audience for kind of the work you guys are putting out? Yeah, I, I think the goal from the earliest days of doing survey work, which is quickly approaching 20 years now, it, it's always been to encourage informed debate. We have lots of other the other kind of debate, but I think encouraging informed debate by establishing a, a public factual record that all sides can agree to. So whatever your, your, your priors, whatever your predispositions, your background, that you can come there and say, okay, I understand that this is how things are working. This is sort of the state of play. And, you know, we can talk about how we got here, the implications of, of this research. We can choose who to blame, but we would ultimately agree on what's happening. And, and I think that's been a huge problem, right? Like, we, like Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, we're, we're coming and looking at the same data often and, and offering wildly different interpretations of what's going on. And I think that's problematic if you want to try to get to consensus, if you want to to achieve compromise, which ultimately is the goal. It's ultimately, you know, democracy is predicated on, right? We, we need to have some amount of agreement on these things in, in order to, to move forward. And I think it starts with credible, reliable research that doesn't have an agenda other than to inform and educate. I, I think you need, someone needs to be doing that, right? It doesn't have to be me. But I think there's a lot, there's a good reason for people to be doing it who have the kind of independence and autonomy that AI provides the scholars. I don't have a, a dog in the hunt for the most part. Uh, I'm certainly a human being. I have you know my own feelings and, and perspectives. But the goal through all this is to be incredibly 
transparent about what we're doing, how we're doing it. And if I get something wrong, absolutely, people are feel are, are free to comment. They have commented uh, on stuff they think I've gotten wrong, and that's you know the goal is to to learn from that and you know move forward. If, where you you get something wrong, you're you're public about it, you're open about it, and you correct it. And, and I think that's we we've kind of lost that in in whether it's Twitter or in a lot of our public discussions, people get immediately defensive when I think we should, we should proceed with humility. Everyone's going to make, you're not going to go throughout your whole career without making some mistakes. And sometimes they're going to be big ones. And I think an openness to, to looking at things a little bit differently. And I think that's one of the things that public opinion can provide. It provides us sort of a window into a world that we otherwise might not have available to us. Last summer when I was at AEI with Summer Honors, um, we talked a lot about the competition of ideas. And I feel like um, that answer kind of um, relates to that a lot with the way that um, your research kind of informs the competition of ideas for public discourse. So that's awesome. Diving in a little more specifically to um, some of your work, your recent op-ed stuck out to me about how female workers are more socially invested in the workplace than their male counterparts and the positive benefits of workplace friendships. I recently saw an article from Pew which reported that the gender pay gap has remained relatively stable over the last 20 years. So based on the data you've collected, do you think there is a relationship between these two phenomena? This is So this was a, a project that I worked with uh, Brent Oral on. And so this is a little bit more of his expertise than, than my own in, in terms of workforce issues. But I do think that one of the things we captured in the disparity in, in workplace sociability is actually a societal phenomenon. We, we see this across domains in terms of the number of close friendships that women have versus men. They have more in terms of the, the amount of time they spend talking with friends, the amount of social and emotional support that women get from their friends versus men. It's more. And so on, on all the, in all these different facets, right, we, we see that women have this significant advantage and it's a critical advantage, right? So we know that social capital matters in, in all areas of life in all areas of human endeavor. It's, it's a really, really important asset. And we're seeing this in the workplace as well. Now it hasn't translated as much to a financial gains or economic gains for, for, for women, but in terms of the, of the pay gap, one of the things that I believe the literature shows is that it's not so much as a gender pay gap as like a mother pay gap. So mothers pay this really significant penalty. Uh, and if you look at women who don't have children, they tend to, you know, their, their, their earnings throughout their career tend to not, not diverge too sharply from that of men, but for, for mothers, it tends to be really, really, you see this huge drop. So when it comes to the, you know, the economic versus the social, I think one of the things that has been unhelpful is we kind of decouple these things. When we think about workplace, when we think about the benefits of a college education, right? So much of our attention has gone to like, well, how, how well does a college education prepare you to have a successful career, to have economic independence, to maybe work on interesting prob- problems uh, or, or just like have an in- interesting uh, career, have interesting career options. And we haven't focused as much on the social capital benefits that college provides. There is a huge social capital divide between people who went to college and those who didn't. And it's not something we pay attention to, but it's the thing that probably is more strongly co- correlated with all these measures of 
uh, personal satisfaction, uh, the amount of number of friends you have, all these these pro-social measures that that are important for living a good life. It's the social part uh, of the college experience that, that really seems to matter. I wrote a whole report on this called The College Connection, and I think it's something that we don't pay enough attention to. Right. So in that same op-ed, you describe um, kind of with what you're talking about, how men and especially those without college degrees, like you're saying, are falling further and further behind the social curve. Based on your research, I guess, what do you see as the cause for this gender disparity specifically in um, not college educated men and kind of like, what can we do about it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. In In the workplace, I think it's right to acknowledge that certain occupations lend themselves more to social capital building than others. So some professions require more extensive social engagement than others. For instance, school teachers, uh, that's a profession that's dominated by women, but they're frequently required to develop stronger ties with parents, with students, uh, other teachers, administrators, and even the broader community. And that's a job you can't do well without developing those connections without developing those social ties. You know, if you're more introverted, it may be more difficult, but that's sort of a job requirement. I think in other careers, particularly those in technical fields, tend to be far less relationship-based, and many of those occupations are disproportionately male. So if you're you're just sitting there coding uh, for 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, you know, you're going to engage with your colleagues somewhat, but it's going to be a completely different experience. The other thing to say about the friendship research that that we conducted that continues to get a lot of attention is that there are some structural factors at play here. Americans are getting married later than they used to. And if you rely on your wife to build your friendship circles, which has happened traditionally, men are much more likely to rely on their spouses, social networks after they get married. If that's not happening until you get married later, then you don't have this support, right? You don't have this person dedicating more of their time to building out social connections for you or on your behalf. And so I think that's part of it. I think we're an incredibly busy society. I think that culturally, too, we've put a lot more emphasis on career and personal success. Right? We're seeing that with your generation where you know parents are saying, you know, You've got to find a rewarding career. You've got to achieve some kind of financial independence. It's not about marriage. It's not about developing rewarding relationships. And, and but these are things that ultimately make us happy. So we've we've got it we've got it wrong, or at least we've got it imbalanced. And I think we need to work on rebalancing our priorities a little bit there. I guess shifting gears a little bit, um, but relatedly in terms of kind of what really matters um, for living a good life, as you put it. Um, I see that you've done research on American faith life post-pandemic and particularly the decline in religious participation. So based on your research, how are we seeing the effects of this decline throughout the country? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things about this this new research we published this year, we're looking at the impact of the pandemic on religious affiliation and religious attendance. And we did this by, we interviewed close to 10,000 people in 2019 and early 2020. And then we re-interviewed these same people. So we found the same people, we recontacted them in spring of 2022. So kind of at the tail end of, of the recession, quote unquote. And we found that there wasn't a huge difference in terms of religious affiliation. So over roughly a two year period, we wouldn't expect major shifts 
in how people are identifying. So people who are Buddhist before are Buddhist after. If you're Muslim before, Muslim, Protestant, right? That that there was some some significant kind of continuity there. When it comes to religious attendance, how often people are attending religious services, we found a significant increase in the um, number of people who who dropped out completely. They no longer attend at all. It was about a quarter before the pandemic and one in three Americans after. So just a really significant increase in people dropping out or opting out of, of religion entirely. And it was disproportionately coming from people who were kind of on the margins before. So these are people who attended once a year, maybe around the holidays. Uh, they, they may not have had strong connections to the, the religious community that they were a part of or attending. And these folks kind of just drifted off. And at the, the folks that I've talked to who are in leadership positions in churches, they don't expect a lot of people to come back. They think this is a, a sort of a permanent shift. And something else that's happened, and I, I've talked about this recently with a group of students, was that the pandemic didn't fundamentally re-alter our religious trajectory. So we've been uh, on a pretty steady decline in terms of organized religion for at least 20 years. Uh, some people put it closer to 30. But it's definitely, you see that the trend line is is abundantly clear over the last 20. And the people who are disproportionately likely to disaffiliate have been people who are younger, people who are politically liberal, and people who aren't married. And the, those are the same people that are disproportionately dropping out due to the pandemic. It's the same types of people. So what we're seeing is the pandemic is kind of pushing us or accelerating these these current trends as opposed to altering completely the 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 course or the state of of organized religion and religion religious life in the US. And that is having actually the effect of creating more religious polarization in the US. The if most of the people leaving are liberals then you have this growing number of people on the left who aren't religious and a consistent number of people on the right who remain religious. We're seeing it generationally where older Americans are, are less religious than they used to be as well, but the gap is widening between the oldest and youngest Americans. And we're also seeing it geographically. So at one time, Vermont was a state that wasn't so dissimilar in terms of the, the you know, big picture religious groups. So Vermont was largely Christian, just like Alabama, just like Mississippi, just like North Dakota. Now we're seeing that the states with who were less religious to begin with are becoming increasingly less religious. So now close to half of people who live in Vermont are not religious. And it's only about, I think, 14% of people in Mississippi. So the gap between people in Vermont and Mississippi, they're living in very, very different religious states now. And, and that's happening across all these different dimensions. Uh, and it's going to play out in our culture and our politics as well. One more question I have regarding kind of your um, survey research is what has been the most surprising insight um, that you've noticed more generally in your recent polling or just like throughout your career? What has been a surprising insight? Uh, one of the things that has, I think, elicited some of the strongest reactions of stuff that I've written recently is this growing political divide between young men and young women. So over the past five or so years, the political gap 
between those two groups has exploded. So I think it's like close to half of young women are now liberal. It's only about a third of young men. If you look at their voting behavior, the vast majority of young women are voting Democrat, whereas young men are, are kind of more divided. I think they lean a little bit de- Democrat, but it wasn't that long ago, certainly during the Obama era, where young, young men and young women were much more politically aligned. And in, in the wake of Me Too or Trump or the overturn of Roe, I think you're seeing a really significant shift in the political priorities and predispositions of, of young women. One of the really fascinating things that we heard in these interviews when we talked to these young men and young women, these were all people under the age of 30, was how divergent their experiences were when it comes to things like Me Too, the Me Too movement. Whereas many young women we talked to, it was an absolutely formative experience. It it influenced how they thought about men and relationships. It influenced how they thought about their place in American society. A lot of the young men we talked to had to be reminded what of what even the Me Too movement was. And the people who did know, they often thought it was, one person said it was like more of a celebrity cultural event than a mass movement that is trying to deal with endemic sexual assault and harassment. So, yeah. And, you know, presumably some of these same young people know each other and talk to each other, but again, they're just living very different lives in, in this one sense and, and their experiences diverge really sharply. So this, that has been something that I I'm increasingly paying attention to. You see, you see it also in terms of sexual identity and preference. So young women have, when it, when it comes to, uh, sexual attraction are much more fluid than men in terms of are they attracted exclusively to men or to women? Men are much more binary, for, whereas women, um, it's much more a spectrum. And so that's another way in which their experiences diverge somewhat. And this is this is all somewhat new. At least this is the data is showing us that the degree to which this is happening and the degree to this the the degree to which there's this really large divide is is new. And I think we're sort of still wrestling with the, the underlying causes. And so now just for the final question, which we asked all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? A lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, I think one of the things that, and there's, I'm going to give you, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give a couple. So one thing is that the, 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 the nature of your, your friendships will change. Your, your, your needs will change the amount of time you're able to spend with friends will change. But I think understanding the value of these relationships, and particularly for, for young men who are among the group that is, is especially struggling with maintaining strong social ties and, and dedicating a lot of your time and energy, not just to, to you know sitting in libraries and reading, but to developing what could be lifelong relationships with your peers and learning from them as much as you're learning from, you know, your instructors, your, your professors. I think that's incredibly valuable. I think availing yourself of new experiences. And I think the value of college comes not just from the, the, the knowledge that you require, which in many cases is going to be out of date, right? Anyone who took computer science classes basically at any time since computer science classes were offered has been, you know, they, by the time they graduate, there's new stuff coming out and there's new stuff to learn. 
this is this is true in any quantitative field as well. My own field, political science, became much more heavily quantitative, and a lot of the tools that we have today didn't exist when I was there. So, I think it's important to to avail yourself of new experiences to allow yourself to learn, but realize that you're you know it's it is just the beginning. You are you are not done opening books and reading and learning after you're after you graduate. So I'm sorry to say. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. This has been really great. Absolutely. Enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society in a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.